thank you. It's lovely to be here. And uh, Nathan, thank you for those words about that song. I was going to actually comment about the songs because they fit so well with uh, the, the message in the scriptures that we're looking at today. The, um, by the way, that song was written, I believe, by a chap who'd lost his wife and, and children at sea. Um, what, what was he doing? He was saying, God's in charge. He knows what he's doing. Now, we've lost a son. we lost a son to cancer. Guess who's in charge? He is. It's lovely. I know uh, Philip is with, safely with the Lord Jesus now. So I'm now going to read the, the last part of our uh, passage, and um, then we're going to dive in. Starting from uh, uh, chapter 7, verse 54. I've got the ESV here. Now, when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church, and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. So let me pray for us as we uh, come to consider God's word. Our loving Heavenly Father, please be doing a deep work in our hearts, strengthen us in our uh, right understanding of you and of this world, and of its, in its brokenness, Strengthen us to know that you are in charge and that we can depend on you and that we don't need to lose courage. Please bless um, this time together and please help me to speak as speaking the very words of God. For we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you're aware it's a long passage and I won't be keeping you till 2.30. So you'll be pleased to know that. It's obviously a turning point in the, in the book, isn't it? We've just had a, one of the summary statements from verse, uh, uh, let's see, verse 7 of chapter 6. And the word of God continued to increase and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. We're seeing a work established in Jerusalem. And that according to what Jesus, Jesus Patton established in Acts 1.8, where he says, and you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come within you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and in all Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And that's basically the outline of where Acts is going, where Luke is going to be telling us the story flows. But at this point, we're seeing an, a, an increase in the persecution We've seen that gradually building too, haven't we? 
And the very last one, back in five, Gamaliel, um, who was, by the way, Paul's, uh, Saul's teacher, he was saying now, um, but go carefully here. We don't want to... Um, you may in fact find that you're actually opposing God. You won't be able to stand against him. So today's drama. We've got the goodies and we've got the baddies, haven't we? The goodie is Stephen. And he's shown to be very good. You know, like when you see in a movie, one of the things they work on very... Especially sort of one of the action movies and the drama and something does something bad. and You know what you want? You want justice for the offended party. The goody is always ultra good. He, he's a, he loves babies. He, he loves his wife. He's, he's a committed man. Um, he's got all the, all the virtues. On the other side, you've got the, uh, the opposition, the enemy, and the, he, they've got all the, uh, you know, they hate babies, etc., etc. And they do something really nasty. They, they, they operate in a wicked way. Well, do we see that here? Yes, we do. We see that with Stephen, who, by the way, is has a, a Greek background. That's, Stephen's actually a Greek name. And he's dealing with Jews who are of a Greek background. They are Hellenistic Jews, just like the widows were back in uh, chapter 6. And so these now not uh, are the main ones who are bringing... Uh, a hard time to Stephen. Now, does Stephen win this by uh, defeating the baddies? It, the way God does victory is very different from the way in the movies, isn't it? We've got a victory of a very different sort here. And now, uh, one of the parts to it, when he did, Stephen disputed, he actually it fulfills a prophecy that Jesus gave in Luke the Luke records for us back in 21 and it says Jesus says I will give you a mouth and wisdom that none of your over, your adversaries will be, will be able to withstand or contradict and Stephen full of the spirit of Jesus is able to do that they, they can't beat him can they so what do they do well they stoop to rather nasty tactics twice they play dirty they get false stuffed accusations against him saying that he's spoken against Moses and the law and the temple three important things to keep in mind as we consider Stephen's response and then we're introduced into a courtroom scene where Stephen is confronting antagonistic hearers, it's not like you guys listening to me it's like you guys want my, my blood, okay and that's what they they, they, didn't, they, were, they were after him Stephen react with a victim mentality? He didn't, did he? He's, he's ultra confident. In fact, that's the point of the verse where he gave, his, his face is, shines like an angel. He is serene, confident, and uh, he's not reacting negatively to underhanded methods. And we know in our society there's lots of underhanded methods going on, isn't there? Get used to it. That's the, that's the situation we see in our world today. That's, and people will do scurrilous things. Do we need, how do we need to react? Be like Stephen. Because guess who's in charge? God is. Well, how do you respond to a bunch of people who don't like you very well, but you know their background is Jewish? They know their scriptures. 
Well, first of all, you've got to come across gently. If you want to... Um, you know, a soft answer turns away wrath, doesn't it? Psalm, Proverbs 15.1. But a harsh word stirs of anger. He doesn't need to come harsh quite yet. And, uh, in fact, one of the people listening to Stephen in this situation would later write, The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kindly to everyone, an apt teacher, correcting his opponents with gentleness. The Lord may perhaps that they grant that they will repent. Guess who wrote that? Paul wrote that, 2 Timothy 2, 24, 26. But he was Saul in this audience at this time. Did Stephen know did, did, did Stephen know Saul? I don't think so. He might have been part of the arguing party. There's sort of a delicious irony here, isn't there? Guess who's in charge? God's in charge. There's Saul, and he's going to be, and he actually needs to be totally anti, um, so that we can see the the miracle of God doing what he's going to do in a couple of chapters' time. So so it's just wonderful. Now, Stephen, he knows that uh, what they've brought against him is is false. In fact, it's very similar to what came, uh, was brought against Jesus. Twisted slightly, but to made, make him look bad. So Stephen didn't directly say, didn't answer. The first thing they do in the courtroom is, uh, are these things true? And Stephen replies, brothers and fathers. He comes across the channel. But is the, are these things true? They're actually saying, are you, are you, do you claim, are you guilty? It's kind of, you're not allowed to do that, by the way. But they did. But he's not going to directly answer their accusations because he knows they're trumped up in their distortions. Instead, he's going to reveal that it's actually his accusers who are the guilty party. They might be outwardly circumcised as Jews, but inwardly they have hard, uncircumcised, rebellious hearts. So, what's his method? Well, one of the good things to do is have a story. And especially if a story that your audience knows well. And that's precisely what he does. He takes them through a story. A story that's got several themes to it. A story of God's sovereign choice. God giving and fulfilling promises. God's presence not limited to a temple um, as, which makes the temple pretty unimportant and the big theme of God's people rejecting God's chosen rulers, God's chosen leaders so he's going to use a story because it's much easier to listen to a story isn't it especially when you know well so he starts brothers and fathers hear me the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran. Now I'm just going to go through each section here, bringing out some main points. First of all, Abraham, in this first section of 1 to 8, he is not the subject of the discussion. God is. You'll notice he always phrases it, God does stuff. Eight times it says, God appearing, God speaking to Abraham, God commanding him, God removing him from Haran, God not giving him the land, but all along, but still promising promising using a big picture prophecy which was going to cover the next 400 plus years 
God is the one who's the, the, the subject of the story. And I want to read to you just the, the very important verse that is actually becomes the backbone of the story in verse uh, 6 of chapter 7. And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in the land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them 400 years. But I will judge the nation they serve, said God, and after that they will come out and worship me in this place. So that's going to be the backbone of his story. God working. By the time we get to the end of the first section where uh, Abraham, he doesn't, he's got a child and the, the, the Isaac... By the way, you know, it's a lot of stuff he, he misses over, doesn't he? He doesn't talk about um, the miracle of Isaac as a fulfilled promise because Stephen's not going there. He's got a, a more narrow, narrow thing he wants to bring out of the story. He wants to, and they don't know it yet, but he's going to be bringing out a theme that puts the spotlight back on his accusers. So... He concludes this part up to the story in verse uh, 8 with the arrival of Jacob and his 12 sons. Then we turn to the next section of 9 to 16 about how God gets the people, fulfills prediction of his people ending up down in Egypt. How do they get there? And of course it's the agonising story of Joseph. God actually using the evil intentions of his own rebellious people. Now catch this. He uses the evil intentions of his own rebellious people, 11 brothers, to accomplish good ends. Something only God can do. And Joseph actually said to his brothers when they were pleading for mercy for him in Genesis 50.20, he says in brief, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. The saving of many. Isn't that lovely? So God's using a very evil act to accomplish something very good. We know where else that happens. The most evil event of all history, the crucifixion of the Creator, God makes the, 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 the wonder of that into the most wonderful event of all history. The way God operates is kind of... You know, he likes doing that kind of stuff using the worst to actually accomplish the best. Now, in the story with Joseph, though, you'll notice God actually does a bit of intervening, doesn't he? Joseph ends up in prison, and uh, we feel for him. It says in uh, Psalms at the... I think, did I say this to you last time? Maybe. But um, in Psalm 105, it says he had metal braces on his wrists and hands and on his ankles, on his neck. And it says... While he had this, he was in this situation, the word of God tested him. You see, he'd had these dreams, hadn't he? That one day his family were going to bow down to him, that he was going to be a ruler. And here was Joseph in prison saying, How in far away from home, how is this going to happen? Does God pull it off? He'd one day. Isn't that beautiful? I just love it. He interprets dreams and becomes known as a dream interpreter and in one day he's taken from the prison to job number one or number two in the country. God intervenes. So God's allowed to do that because he's in charge. 
God's direct intervention. So God delivered him and uh, made him ruler. Now what Stephen is doing here is he's starting to reveal a pattern. Joseph, the rejected Joseph, becomes the one God chooses as a leader. You got it? God chose him in his dreams. He said, you know, your family's going to bow down to it. And, and that's God fulfilled that. Joseph rejected becomes the one God has chosen as a leader. We'll see the pattern repeated in a minute. And, even, and that we see God's purposes are not thwarted even by evil. So in verse 15 and 16, we have a quick summary of that generation dying in Egypt. And uh, then they, they, their remains are taken back to um, the promised land, which is still promised. It's not theirs yet, but they are allowed to, in, in the part that's been bought, they bury their, their, uh, the, the families there, those that have died. So in 17 to 29, the story continues. Once again, the emphasis is on God fulfilling his promise in verse 17. But as the time of the promise drew near, note the focus, which God had granted to Abraham, the one that we've already read, just read before, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt. God's starting to fulfill, making them into a nation. But it also is the fulfillment of the promise of the negative. Pharaoh, a promised opposition, an enemy. Isn't it lovely to have an enemy promised? Yes, well, God's allowed to do that. And uh, this particular opposition, Pharaoh, shows himself to be a rather nasty piece of work and he's gifted in persecuting God's people. And then into this dreadful situation, you'd say, oh, who would have children in this situation? I've heard people say that to me. One of my teachers at school, he got, got out of Vietnam, he decided to never have children because he thought the world was so bad. But this one is much worse. Into this terrible situation, we have the arrival of Moses, who God in his providence rescued by the daughter of the chief persecutor. You like that? That's a real irony there again. I love it. And he's brought up, um, and... uh, in all the knowledge of Egypt, some of the points that um, he brings out in, in Acts here are not included in Genesis, by the way. There are additional points, even then with Abraham leaving um, Ur. Right, we, when we read in um, Genesis uh, 12, he's in Haran already. So you can see there's these extra bits that he's flushing the story out. Um, and once again, we see another part of this is we see um, with the incident of Moses confronting this guy who's giving his fellow Hebrew a hard time, this Egyptian, and uh, he does the heroic thing, like in the movies, and cleans up the, um, the bad Egyptian. But we're told here some of his thinking. And he's thinking, yeah, he knows that God's given him a special role. That he's going to be a ruler, a leader. And... Uh, What's the result of all that? What, does, what message is, uh, is Moses given by the, uh, in the second incident? Nikoff, who made you ruler over us. Besides, didn't you murder somebody yesterday? And that's precisely what he does. He has to run away. He is, and it's very important here, he is shoved away. 
because that's exactly what uh, Stephen's going to say about what they do to, to Moses very shortly. So Stephen is emphasising this treatment of leaders chosen by God. Just like Joseph had been treated badly by his brothers and would be a leader, so Joseph, and same happens to Moses. Now in verse 30 to 34, we see, surprise, surprise, 40 years later, God's not in a hurry, Moses is called by God to be leader of his people. Important location, by the way. It's not in, not in uh, the promised land. It's, on, it's outside the promised land, Mount Sinai. But it's holy ground. Now, you see, his listeners think, where's the only holy ground around? The temple. The temple that they've got under their, you know, they've got mastered. That's their, um, their bread and butter. So he keeps, what Stephen's actually doing is he's emphasising just subtly that the temple isn't the only thing going. In fact, it's only God there that makes the temple holy. And that's what he says in with why he actually spells out with um, Moses being called. You know, this, why tell him all this bit about, you know, you, the, why add that to the story? The, take your shoes off, pal. Holy ground. It's to help the hearers realise it's not our temple that's so, pre- so precious. Wherever God is, is holy ground. So he's subtly answering their accusation. Do you see that? All right, so he's building a case against them. Now, once Moses has been chosen, well, it says in verse 34, I have surely seen, and this is the fulfillment of the, the big picture promise earlier, I have surely seen the affliction of my people, says God, who are in Egypt, and have heard them groaning, and I have come down to deliver them. And now... Come, I will send you to Egypt. This is part of the big picture that Stephen gave earlier. Now, the story top telling stops. Good to be able to get this in your thinking. Because now he changes into explaining. And you'll see in the next verses, he keeps saying, This Moses, this Moses, this man, this Moses, this Moses. This Moses whom they rejected, saying, who made you a uh, ruler and judge? This man God sent as, as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel of Peter in the bush. This man, same pattern as Joseph, now repeated with Moses. What else did this man do? Verse 36, this man led them out, performed wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. Boy, there's a whole of Exodus just in one sentence and at this point Stephen introduces an extremely important prophecy about the coming Messiah because Stephen's going to raise it again this is the Moses who said to the Israelites God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers very important prophecy and this is the one, Moses, who was in the congregation of the wilderness, etc., etc. This is the one they rejected. And even though he brought them living word, 
God's living word. He doesn't dishonor the word there, you notice that? He's not speaking against the law at all, like they accused him of. He honors the scriptures. In fact, he's been quoting it, you know, over and over and over. He has a very high view of scripture, contrary to their accusation. Okay, so now he gets to the response of the fathers. And he explains two sections of response. First, 39 to 43 is the first one and how they respond to Moses' leadership. And then 39, um, and then next to uh, how they respond with the temple. But in the first one, he just says, Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust Moses aside. And in their hearts they they turned to Egypt, say your own, make us gods. And you know the rest of the story there. They thrust Moses aside. In fact, they, they had uncircumcised hearts. They, they didn't want to follow God at all. They were not devoted to the living God and demonstrated by the way they treated Moses. Now next is how do they treat the, is their attitude to the temple. And so Stephen picks up the story of the temple problem his hearers have is that they, they're guilty of having a God in the box theology we've got God in a box we've got the temple, the temple, the temple all's fine by us <laughs> and we kind of, you can imagine that they might have considered that they, they actually had a, a God management program with all their offerings and stuff, we're managing God quite well thank you very much, doing all the, the right things but where was their heart? It was rebellious against God. And so Stephen, he quotes, actually he, 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 um, he agrees with Solomon's prayer. I don't know if you know Solomon's prayer, but Solomon prayed, Lord, now we know this place is too small, but God says it again in Isaiah 66, which says, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me? What's the big deal? What place? What is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? Interesting, you know how the rest of that goes on? It says in Isaiah, but this is the man to whom I will look. He was of a humble and contrite spirit and trembles at my word. See, God's not interested in the great big temple. He's interested in humble individuals. He wants us to draw near to him. That's why my quiet time, I know, he he delights in that. He's infinite, but he delights in the most humble. Isn't that beautiful? But they didn't understand that. So, the time arrives for Stephen to apply what he has been explaining to his hearers. They are the guilty party. And he lets them have it. The accusations are now turned back onto them and these accusations are true. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did with Joseph and with Moses and with all the prophets. Which of the prophets did the fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, the Messiah, the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You've killed the Messiah. 
That's come up a few times in Acts already, hasn't it? That's what they you've already been you've heard over and over. They've said, "You did it. You murdered Jesus. You who received the law, who you say are, uh, that you, the law that you're supposed to be honouring, delivered by angels, but you don't keep it." So how did they respond to the strong night medicine? Well, in Proverbs it says, Reprove a wise man, and he will be wiser still. But he who reproves a wicked man, what does he get? Abuse. A blood nose. Reading in Proverbs. So guess what happened here? The uh, reaction that we have all read. Rage. They ground their teeth. You have to be pretty angry. Just expensive intensity, doesn't it? And in the midst of this intensity, Stephen gets this vision of God with Jesus standing at the right hand of God. They're full of angst. What's Stephen full of? There's a serenity. There's a joy. God, is in, in his kindness, has given him this vision. But it, that vision has actually several, does several things. It honours Stephen. Because what's Jesus doing? He's standing. Now, I take that to be, because Jesus promised he will honour me before men, I will honour before my Father in heaven. So one aspect of it, at least I think, is that Jesus is honouring Stephen for being a good finisher as he honours Jesus before men. It also brings out the, the fact that as they are listening, the murderers are listening, he is saying, I can see the one you murdered. He is alive, he rules, he's with God, he's fulfilling Daniel 7 if you know the the picture in Daniel 7. So, Stephen's death. It's very like Jesus, isn't it? In two aspects. Jesus says, Father, receive my spirit. Stephen says, 